My name is Amaza Balaosage, and I'm the interview editor for the Africa Policy Journal at the Harvard Kennedy School, where we advance policy through dialogue. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Albert Zufak, the World Bank's Chief Economist for Africa. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very, very good to be here, Amaza. So I want to start with our traditional first question, okay. which is, how did you get to where you are today? Interesting question. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm from Cameroon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, you know, grew up, of course, in 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 Chang, Cameroon, but also Yaoundé. And I uh, studied economics at the University of Yaoundé, mm-hmm. where I got my master's degree before moving to uh, France, where I uh, studied at the CED in Clermont-Ferrand. Then got an exchange with the University of Michigan, and uh, got an internship for the World Bank when I was doing my PhD in economics. And that was the beginning of a very, very long story. I've, uh, since then, uh, you know, finished my PhD, went back to academia, taught at the University of Clermont-Ferrand, then got into the World Bank finally in 1997 through the Young Professionals Program. And because of my research and academic background, I started my career in the research department of the World Bank, which has which later on proved to be very, very useful. So uh, from the research department, I actually work on across regions, providing cross support for different regions in the Middle East, you know, Africa, but also Asia. Um, and, and after a stint at the, uh, state, at, at, at the uh, research department, I moved to the chief economist office of the uh, 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 East Asian region. And from There, I spent roughly 10 years of my career working on East Asian countries uh, and becoming the uh, senior country economist for Malaysia, a country I later on joined uh, on second men, you know, to work from within. Um, So uh, upon return to the World Bank in 2012, I became the manager for macroeconomics and uh, fiscal management for Central and East Africa. And since 2016, I'm the chief economist for Africa at the World Bank. So I want to pick up a little bit on your educational background and how that played in. I think the struggle for a lot of people who are PhDs is sort of the traditional, whether to go into academia and purely teach or whether to take a more policy facing role. Right. So you indicated that you taught first and then went back into the World Bank. That's Maybe right. I can ask you to speak a little bit more about what encouraged you to make that shift and what factors you think might lead someone to either go one way or the other. Do you think there's a particular personality type or sort of interest that makes someone better suited for one role rather than the other? Well, that's a very, very interesting question because uh, I think... Um, Throughout my education and 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 and, and, and undergraduates and graduates, I grew to believe that there was no uh, clear uh, distinction between academia and policy work. Why? Because at the University of Yaoundé, we had undergrad uh, professors who were actually consulting for the World Bank. Mm. One of my uh, professors of uh, development economics, the late Professor Ntangsi, was a PhD from Berkeley who was working for the World Bank, but who was teaching at the University of Yaoundé. We got people like Dr. Salmon, who had been in academia, who were teaching also 
at the university. So we grew believing that you can actually have a PhD, be teaching, but also be involved in the policy environment. So that's clearly how uh, it came to me that being in academia wasn't actually, being in academia and in the policy world, especially at the World Bank, wasn't mutually exclusive. Um, in your work in the World Bank, you spend a lot of time working actually in East Asia and East right. Asian countries. Yeah. Um, I want to find out a bit more about what you think you learned from working in a place quite different to Cameroon when you grew up and what messages you've been able to take back from the time that you spent in Malaysia. Well, you may be surprised, but when I started working on East Asia, I found the region to be very, very similar to Africa. And, you know, if you have been to Kuala Lumpur, mm -hmm. you would probably, when you are landing, believe that you are actually landing into Douala. Because you have the same palm trees, you have the same, uh, you know, the same uh, geography, you have the same climate, you have, you know, Southeast Asia is actually by many ways similar to African countries. You know. but, but, but it's also similar in, in, in the way people behave. It's very, very different from Europe or the US, but it's actually very, very similar. People keep, you know, you know values that are very, very close to those that I experienced growing up in Africa. So in that sense, it wasn't so much of a shock. You know, traits such as modesty, such as listening, are extremely valued in East Asia. And, and, and that certainly made me feeling sometimes home. The other interesting aspect about Southeast Asia is diversity and ethnicity. And if you think African countries are ethnically diverse, well, think twice, because countries like Malaysia actually have a lot of you know, ethnic groups. But the big difference is that they manage to put their differences aside when it comes to the development of their country. Mm. They all pull together to make sure countries grow, to make sure employment is created for everyone, to make sure dividends of growth are distributed across the population. But they do have their very, very staunch differences across ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So I'm always annoyed when I hear that the reason why African countries are not you know, moving forward is because of ethnic differences. I don't believe so. It's about policy. It's about principles. And that's actually what makes the big difference between those countries and ours. And a couple of areas where these countries really, really differ from ours. Uh, you know, first is most governments in Southeast Asia had a long-term vision, had a clearly articulated way to take their countries from point A to point B. And that was shared by most people in the country. Second is that while those countries were not corruption-free, they manage, most of them manage to keep corruption out of the economic production sphere. Instead of you know, asking investors to bribe to invest in their countries, East Asian countries were actually corrupting investors to come. <laughs> yes, literally, basically going out there and making sure all the best investors in sectors that they have carefully selected to be key to their development, that those investors come and settle in their countries. And they were given all 
the incentives to settle and create jobs. And that's why a country like Malaysia, a country of less than 30 million people, created so many jobs that they could not fill them. They have to import labor from Indonesia, they have to import labor from Sri Lanka, and they have therefore kept an open mind that allowed them, for example, to come to me and actually actively sought to uh, poach me from the World Bank and, uh, you know, asking me to come and lead research and be the chief economist of one of their sovereign wealth funds. That's very interesting, especially with the point that you've made about the long-term vision of political leadership. You've spoken about how important that's been, you think, in Malaysia's success. So do you ever feel that when you're doing work in African countries where perhaps that vision is lacking, that you are being hindered or stymied in the effectiveness of the work that you can do because of the political leadership in place? How do you work around that? Well, the thing is, it's very difficult to walk around lack of political leadership. Mm. Uh, it's either there or it's not. And, and, and when it's not, it's extremely um, costly, both in terms of growth, in terms of peace, in terms of uh, development. So um, it is crucial, you know, that institutions such as yours here, you know, at the Kennedy School and uh, law school, that you guys really work to help our countries improving political governance. This is key. This is really key to development. So um, you know, one thing that is uh, absolutely clear is you know, there is progress, right? We can see progress is a number of countries. A number of countries are now adopting medium to long-term visions. But for some, it's still at the level of the uh, mantra. It's still at the level of uh, you know, big pronouncement, but not follow up by a concrete machinery to translate those visions into implementable actions, monitorable, monitorable actions, and, and, and results that are actually used to provide the incentive for those who are doing well, mm. or to sanction those that are not doing well. So that is still lacking, and I think it is one area where we really need to continue investing in. I want to ask a little bit about how you think about setting your priorities within your role, particularly when there are situations where we seem to have long-term but perhaps more amorphous threats. I'm thinking of things like you know, climate change, which is giving us extreme weather events. We have this hurricane now that's devastated a lot of southern Africa, but perhaps is not the immediate issue that people think about in terms of what do we need to be prepared for in the economy. Whereas you have shorter term threats, which people are more concerned about currently, but may not have that sense of, may not have as large of an impact. How do you balance between that sort of short term and long term vision? Well, as chief economist for Africa at the, at the World Bank, um, you know, the scope of work is extremely uh, large, but the depth is also, you know, there. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, we have uh, a huge heterogeneity across the continent. We're speaking of 48 economies, right? Mm -hmm. 48 countries. So it's always important to acknowledge that Africa is not a country. It may sound trivial, mm -hmm. but when it comes to the policy uh, environment, I still see people thinking of 
policies that have to be you know adopted to change Africa those do not exist it's important to acknowledge that you have a group of natural resource rich economies in Africa for example especially those oil rich that are struggling to recover from the uh, largest shock you know of, of uh, 2016 mm. and those economies are not growing fast unfortunately those are the largest of our continent Nigeria, South Africa, Angola, uh, you, you have those economies for which a certain type of you know, policies need to be applied. And for those, the first priority is macro stability. You need to make sure these countries really manage you know, the macro framework appropriately. They need to keep inflation down. They need to stabilize exchange rate. They need to keep debt in check because some of these economies have actually piled up debt over the past 10 years in a way that is becoming unsustainable. And you know the, the issue of debt is not just the level of debt, right? It's, it's in what you invest that debt. It's the efficiency of public investment in our countries, right? Which is basically that we are probably you know, contracting those debts, but investing it in areas that are not, you know, going to be able to pay back or to service the debt. So it's important for those countries to really, really strengthen the macro environment. Now, you have another group of countries in Africa which are growing extremely fast. You know, countries like Ethiopia, Rwanda, countries like Senegal, Ghana, countries like Cote d'Ivoire, uh, who are actually really growing above 6% per year and have been doing so for the past five years, those economies are at a very, very critical juncture of their development path, which is you know, achieving success in structural transformation. Mm. And for those, it's a different set of policies that also have to be in place, right? You know, those economies have to be investing in uh, you know strengthening regional integration and i think the opportunity of the continental free trade agreement is going to be one those economies can actually seize because it's not just about exporting uh, globally it's also exporting regionally increasing intra-african trade right so policies that could reduce non-tariff barriers that could reduce tariffs that could actually improve the investment climate for firms to settle in those economies to transform their natural resources and create the jobs would be critical right so uh, for those one very very important aspect would be uh, digitalization mm. right I think you know for those and, and and I believe for all of these economies our countries need to resolutely embrace and harness the digital revolution that's going to be the key to boost productivity of existing sectors but also create a new economy create entrepreneurship in the youth because obviously you know governments are not going to be able to provide the jobs to uh, our our youth because you know just of the sheer um, speed at which our population is growing so it is important that the digital uh, revolution be harnessed to 
boost productivity but also create jobs and, and, and power the new economy. So that's a little bit of what I would say about prioritizing. But for the rest of the continent, you also have fragility that is undermining the continent. What is happening in the Sahel, in uh, around Lake, Lake Chad, in the Horn of Africa, around the Great Lakes, these are pockets of fragility that are costing us a lot. So it is important that we also tackle fragility and, you know, we will be discussing during the upcoming spring meetings of the World Bank and, and, and in, you know, in Washington in, uh, from April 8th, we will be discussing, you know, how to tackle fragility, especially using those regional approaches because, you know, fragility cut across borders. So these are also uh, situations we need to tackle with very specific policy tools. But for all the continent, let me just say, investing in human capital is a win-win. Investing in human capital, improving education and health of the continent, and I think President uh, you know, Akufo Ado said it uh, yesterday, it is essential that Africa devotes its own resources to funding education and health and prepare its youth for the future. We cannot continue to leave the future of our youth to others. I think investing in human capital is going to be critical. At the World Bank, we see the human capital, we see digitalization as being critical tools for future development. I want to pick up on two themes that uh, came out in your question. Um, one on the theme of making sure that debt is being invested into places that are productive right. so that it can be paid back. There's a lot of concern, I think, about the levels of Chinese debt, particularly a lot of countries are taking. Absolutely. And on the fact that many feel that the terms of the trade deals that are being set that are maybe giving away natural resources without giving the country itself an opportunity to refine and take up more of the supply chain are unfair. How would you respond to those criticisms? And also, how do you think that countries can start changing the terms of those negotiations? Yes, the uh, issue of Chinese debt is uh, being discussed and debated uh, quite extensively. But we have to start from one basic statistic, which is the infrastructure gap in Africa. Right? I've spent most of my career working on East Asia. And I'm going to be honest with you, when I really came back and started working in Africa, I was disappointed. And I've been asking myself, what have we been doing for the past 40, 50, 60 years? Where is the infrastructure? Because even the, 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 the countries like Cambodia, which exited conflict less than 30 years ago, have built more infrastructure than most of our African countries. So... The infrastructure gap is just so huge in Africa. My office just completed a report on energy access. Unbelievable, but number of African countries still have less than 15% of their population that have access to electricity. What can we achieve without power, without electricity? How can we industrialize without electricity? How can we connect to the internet without electricity? How can we seize this, you know, fourth industrial revolution without electricity? That's just an example. 
So the gap in physical infrastructure is just, physical and digital infrastructure is just so big in Africa that countries need to really find the resources to close it. Now, how do they get those resources? Well, bilateral resources and, you know, aid from Europe has been declining as European countries face their own issues, right? And, you know, given the size of that gap, it's going to be important for African countries to raise those resources from different sources. And China has been one of those resources. Those resources. Now, the question is, you know, in terms of contracting debt, it's always about negotiations, right? It's, in term, it's always about, um, you know, what we bring to the table, right? And, and uh, it's open us, African countries, to realize our bargaining power. And we do have some, yes? China does need our resources. So we can actually come to the table, you know, and discuss exactly how to leverage those resources to get better terms for loans we can contract to build our infrastructure. Again, contracting debt is not the issue. Is how you use it and how costly it is. So if you can negotiate better terms, you should be able to do so to build the infrastructure that is the basis for any development. So, um, you know, I think when it comes to that discussion, I tend to say the ball is on, on our court, mm. us African. First of all, to realize that we do have a bargaining power. And to realize also that China is not coming to us for philanthropy. They're coming for business. And, you know, we have to put our best foot forward to negotiate hard with the Chinese to get the best for our countries because what China is looking for is to get the best for their own economy. So I think that realization is important because my sense is quite often in Africa we tend to be very, very nice and we go out looking for friends and new friends and my new <laughs> discover friend and we tend to, you know, operate as if the world was, you know, you know, lining up people to come and help us. For what? It's business, right? So it's important for us to really discuss on those terms and then use the resources we obtain effectively, efficiently, and cut corruption. Because let's be honest, a lot of these contracts are tainted with corruption. And, you know, it is important for us to really make sure we control corruption and we go in those uh, discussions looking for the best, not for our individual uh, good, but for our countries. And the second theme that I wanted to pick up on in terms of your priorities is talking about the digital economy. Yeah. I think one of the industries that people think is particularly promising is fintech, financial right. technology. Um, but often young entrepreneurs going into that area find that they are very hindered by regulation in right. their economies. So I don't know, perhaps you can talk more about steps the World Bank may be taking to address some of those regulations and to think more about the regulatory environment that will allow them to thrive. That's 
an excellent question because the digital economy is certainly the way of the future, but it would not come to us without hard work. We would not be able to really harness it without hard work. You mentioned fintech, but you mentioned fintech, but um, what is clear is that um, the digital revolution is not just about fintech. At the World Bank, our new strategy is articulating the digital economy in terms of a digital moonshot for Africa, setting very, very high but monitorable targets for digital infrastructure, access to broadband, for example, for digital skills, because we need a population that is literate and able to use those uh, you know, new tools. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of entrepreneurship, digital entrepreneurship, but also in terms of improving the regulatory framework, fintech is just one application of the digital economy to one specific sector. Mm-hmm. But we can actually harness the digital to improve all sectors of our economies. Take agriculture, for example. We now seeing already in Kenya and uh, Nigeria, uh, services like Uber being applied to tractors, right? Where people can rent a truck, a, 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 a tractor for an hour using their, their phone and pay by mobile money. And it's already increasing productivity in villages where this is actually happening in Nigeria, for example. And those tractors come with a device that is also sending information about the quality of the soil to uh, those producing fertilizers. So this economy can actually, this digital economy can actually transform even our agriculture. So it's not just about fintech. So we are clearly engaging African countries and we're standing ready. We're actually putting a lot of resources behind African countries that would want to, you know, attack, uh, you know, the... uh, uh, the or, or really um, you know harness the digital the digital revolution. Now you mentioned regulatory framework. That's actually key because one of the constraints to the digital economy in Africa is the level of monopoly or oligopoly that exists in telecom, in ICT, in some of the areas that would actually be critical for the digital economy to prosper. Countries need to tackle those. Right? These are, in some cases, areas where there are uh, clear rents, you know, situational rents, but, but also, uh, you know, some collusion that may happen, you know. But again, we do have to tackle the regulatory framework, and the key word here is competition. We need to ensure that there is competition in all the areas that would allow the digital economy to flourish in Africa. So. Completely agree with you. Work on the regulatory framework is essential. And my office is actually starting a new study on, uh, you know, improving or, you know, uh, maximizing benefits from the digital economy. And one of the areas we are studying is the regulatory framework. And perhaps as my final question, 
what advice would you give to a young person who is interested in pursuing your career path? Well, as chief economist for Africa, the World Bank, um, the first thing is study economics, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> study economics because, yes, uh, you won't be chief economist if you're not an economist. That's for sure. But, but study hard. Uh, and and excel at whatever you are you you are you are studying because uh, nat naturally you know selection is extremely uh, 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 you know steep. But um, the advice I would give is um, um, well um, think you know think of the uh, the end before you start. What do I mean by that? If you get into your first year econ class not knowing that you want to work for the World Bank, it's going to be very difficult to get in. Why? Because you may slack in your first years believing that it's okay. But then when you try to get into the Young Professionals program, you would realize that you know your transcripts from the first year would actually be necessary to do the selection, right? So, um, you know, put yourself in the best possible um, tracks to get to the end that you have defined before you start. It's very difficult to um, uh, to reach those levels if you know you are randomly moving in your career path. Uh, for me, particularly, one thing that was extremely helpful was that right from the first year of uh, econs at the University of Yaoundé, I was very, very much impressed by a professor, and I decided that I'm going to be a university professor. So when I started, I knew I was going to do a PhD. And it was extremely important because at the University of Yaoundé, those days, um, it was extremely selective. To get into masters, you had to be among the best of the best. So right from the beginning, we had to work extremely hard to ensure that one day we could, you know, get a PhD and and be uh, a, a good university professor. So um, you know, second advice is, don't be afraid. It's possible. And and. You know, I, I did my 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 undergrad and, and part of my graduate study at the University of Yaoundé in Cameroon in conditions that you may not even imagine. But if you uh, really work extremely hard and, and, and keep ambition and keep your goals high, it is possible. It is possible. Don't be afraid. You know, you may hear that it's, ex you know, it's almost impossible to get to the World Bank or it's very difficult. Yes, it is difficult because it's competitive. The Young Professionals program is very selective, but it's possible to get in, right? So, you know, uh, every year the World Bank hires, you know, 30 to 40 you know, young professionals. Yes, out of 10 to 12,000 candidates, but it's still a possibility. Don't be afraid. So, um, and, 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 and third, you know, think of a career that you'll be happy to do as a hobby. I think you cannot achieve heights in your career if you don't love what you do. Thanks.
Thank you so much for that advice and for sitting down with us today. You're most welcome.